listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields, from leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Welcome, everyone, to, as Susan just said, our 150th Walker webcast. It's a real joy to have, um, as I get older, I'm not supposed to say an old friend, I'm supposed to say a long-standing friend, Mark Lipschultz, join me today. Before I dive into my conversation with Mark, just a couple quick things as it relates to the 150th Walker webcast. This whole concept came out of the pandemic where we felt we needed to talk to our clients and tell them what was going on as the world sort of shut down. And there were a couple of things that were really important about what we did that has made it so that now, three years later, we're still at this and just doing our 150th today. The first was that that Friday that the world shut down, I turned to Susan and thought, what was the time that we needed to get our act together? And we just said, let's try it next Wednesday. We picked Wednesday and we stuck with Wednesday. Many of you may recall that lots of companies put webcasts together to give information to their clients, but they moved those webcasts around. They'd say, we'll do one one Friday. They'll do one one Monday. I think one of the things that has made this have legs is we picked the day and we stuck to it and we stuck to a time. The second is that we were pretty straightforward that while Walker and Dunlop and the people inside of Walker and Dunlop have opinions and insight that is very valuable, we sort of made the decision to bring in outsiders like my friend Mark today so that the viewers could see what's going on in the market, not from a Walker and Dunlop perspective, but from an outsider's perspective. And so we have been blessed and I personally have been blessed to have great, great, great friendships like people like Mark Lipschultz who agree to come on here, give us an hour of their time. I'm often asked how much it costs us to get guests. We've actually never paid a guest to be on the Walker webcast in all 150. The only person we paid was the swimmer, Katie Ledecky, where the US Olympic Committee pays Katie $4,800 or back then to give speeches. And we decided to pay that honorarium to the U.S. Olympic Committee so that they wouldn't have to come out of pocket to have Katie speak at the Walker webcast. But we haven't paid people and it's out the goodness of their hearts. And also, quite honestly, the fact that this is watched so widely. We're now over 8 million views of the Walker webcast and the typical weekly views are somewhere between 70 and 100,000. My interview with Peter Linneman, not this past quarter, which just went over 100,000, but the quarter before is getting close to 300,000 views. And at the end of the day, it's just a real joy and blessing to be able to do something like this and have people be able to look at it and get insight on the markets and be able to listen to someone like Mark today, talk about what's going on in the markets, how he and his partner have built Blue Owl, et cetera. The final thing I would say is that while this takes a tremendous amount of my time, it is a true pleasure. And from a, from a growth and leadership standpoint, I look at people like David Rubenstein, who both Mark and I know quite well. And David talks about how much he reads. Bill Gates talks about how much he reads. And I in no way am trying to compare myself to David Rubenstein or Bill Gates as it relates to their success and what they've accomplished in life. But they are both voracious readers. And I have had to do a lot of research and read a lot of things that I typically wouldn't do in the normal course of my job if I didn't have the webcast on a weekly basis. And after having interviewed Condoleezza Rice last Tuesday, Kirill Sokolov of 13D Research on Wednesday, Evan Osnos of The New Yorker on Saturday, Ezra Klein of The New York Times on Monday, I had to jam last night to get myself ready for this talk with my old friend Mark today. And at the same time, it was a joy at 1130 last night pulling together some of my questions for Mark. Let me do a quick intro to you. Lippy, and then we'll dive into our conversation. Mark Lipschultz is co-chief executive officer of Blue Owl Capital. Mark co-founded Blue Owl Rock Capital Partners, the predecessor firm to Blue Owl's credit platform. 
Prior to co-founding Alrock, Mark spent more than two decades at KKR, serving on the firm's management committee and as global head of energy and infrastructure. Prior to KKR, he was with Goldman Sachs. Mark serves on the board of the Hess Corporation, the American Enterprise Institute, the Michael J. Fox Foundation, Mount Sinai Health System, Riverdale Country School, Stanford University, and the 92nd Street Y. Mark received an MBA with distinction from Harvard Business School and is a Phi Beta Kappa graduate of Stanford University. So Mark, first of all, welcome. It's super, super fun to have you here. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. You have an incredible webcast. I have learned a lot from you already. Or frankly, that long predates the webcast, but includes the webcast and pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Mark, you and your partner, Doug, both sit on the Michael J. Fox board. And as I looked at both of your bios, it's the only overlap you have. You didn't go to the same college, same business school, didn't work at the same firms. What is it about the Michael J. Fox Foundation that has both of you on it? So I think a couple of things to, to highlight. Look, the the way Doug and I have had the good fortune of coming together to ultimately found Blue Owl and, and, and lead it today you know, starts, I think, well, really is built on three foundational legs. We have had a long personal friendship. We've known each other for a very long time, but not that we were dear friends, not that we were best friends prior to forming this, that, that thankfully we've become best friends, but not prior to forming this. So it doesn't have that origin story. You go know, back to my mentors, Andrew Gravis, George Roberts, you know, they, they're cousins, they you know grew up together. So you know, there's definitely bases or partnerships that long predate ours, but we had the friendship, certainly, that had existed. We had worked together professionally kind of more in, in parallel or in our roles. Doug was the founder of GSO, and of course, GSO, they sold Blackstone, and therefore, Doug was one of the people running the whole Blackstone credit business, today the largest alternative credit business probably in the world. And I had spent 21 years at KKR and, and had had some senior roles there. And so, in our respective roles, we certainly overlapped professionally, you know, probably more in terms of things that our groups were doing together than one-on-one. Than -on -one. But we always had a kind of a dialogue, got together every six months and just talked. We always had a wonderful professional relationship as well. And then to your point, community service. And you know, I don't think it's something magical, you know, although I think the Michael J. Fox Foundation is magical. I don't think it's something magical or mystical about that particular platform, but I think reflective for both of us you know, of, of something we really believe is important, which is engagement in the community and in important causes. And that indeed was one that we both have been involved with for a long time. And we wind the clock back and I actually try to kind of come up with what's the first thing we actually did together. I think in 07, we on our, our spouses and some others co-chaired the Michael J. Fox Gala. So that might actually be the first tangible thing I could point to that we definitely did together. It's kind of neat. So you mentioned, Mark, that both of you left really big jobs in really big private equity firms. And you've built a 17 billion plus market cap company. So the the, the success you've had is phenomenal. But what was it that the two of you saw outside of KKR and Blackstone that you couldn't do inside of Blackstone or KKR that said to the two of you, let's hop out and go do something new? So Blackstone and KKR do a lot of great things. And in fact, I'm sure there's nothing we have done or could do that they couldn't do if they wanted to. But I think we've taken a different- Except you own the majority of this one. <laughs> we've taken a different approach, which is, listen, we have the great privilege of you know, Doug having spent a lifetime in, in alternatives and in, and in credit markets, building GSL, and then at Blackstone for eight years, I had spent my decades at KKR- our CFO had come from TPG. Our other co-founder, Craig Packer, was Ryan Lovers Finance at Goldman Sachs. So we we came together having the benefit of having worked at these incredible institutions and therefore learned from them. I made reference before to Henry Kraus and George Roberts, who are just dear friends, extraordinary people, and you know, built an incredible institution that I was lucky enough to be a part of. I'm in fact lucky enough to be a part of since you and I were together at, at Harvard Business School. Since the day I graduated, that was my my job out of business school. And so uh, taking it all together, you know, what we were able to do was take the, the the privileges we had from being in those places, the lessons we learned, 
and bring them into a focused firm where we said, look, we see also a market opportunity. We see an evolution that if I could maybe simplify it in the biggest sense of the word, private equity had taken a kind of multi-decade arc from this boutique kind of backwater business into an absolutely mainstream asset class by the mid 2015 when we decided we were going to do this. And we thought there was a parallel opportunity in the world of private credit, or really even more broadly, as you think about the subsequent you know, combination with, with our GP stakes business, our real estate business, to be able to provide the, the picks and shovels to this now multi-trillion dollar gold mining industry known as alternatives. You have in the back of your in de- investor deck, Mark, or actually it's at the back of your website, a slide that I thought was fantastic that basically shows investors that evolution from publicly traded companies and how that number has decreased from almost 7,000 back in 2000 to just 4,600 today. So that's down by over 2,000 companies. And that companies owned by private equity firms from 2000 to 2022 have grown from 1,800 to over almost 11,000. And so you've seen this massive shift of ownership in the public markets to the private markets. And as you just said, Blue Owl is really focused on that. As I saw that stat, and it sort of, it it made my jaw drop, to be perfectly honest with you, particularly because you and I both run publicly traded companies. I sort of scratch my head and say, am I the idiot going the wrong way here? But do you think that's more a an impact of just really smart people saying there's more flexibility in the private markets? Or do you think it is something of the mark to market? I mean, obviously, private portfolios are marked on a quarterly basis. So it's not as if you avoid that, but your stock's going to move up or down today. My stock's going to move up or down today. And there are certain pressures to that that are very distinct from being in a private format. What do you think has made that big sea change from the public markets to the private markets? So there's incredible power in the public markets. You, you experience it. I experience it. And, and we're fortunate that we have these incredibly deep public and private markets. You know, one of the great innovations, obviously, when we think about the US, we think about tech innovation and today AI front and center. We think about medical innovation and look no further than, you know, the, the, the speed with which we came to a vaccine and, and now can produce new forms of medicines, cutting edge. But one of the greatest powers of the US system or the capital markets. And I sort of think about this as that continued innovation and evolution of creating different pools of capital to meet different needs, different forms of the way you might finance a business to be able to continue to innovate. And so I it, it's not really that one is superior in all instances to the other. In fact, I think what's happened is we've developed a private market that is, in many cases, superior for a long-term plan. There are a lot of benefits to the private market. But it's really about the facts and circumstances. So I look at it and say, what we want and are fortunate enough to have in the U.S. today are really deep and vibrant public and private markets. So I do think people select the private markets because there is an ability to plan longer, think longer, operate over a longer horizon in terms of strategy and business. But it's not without its limits. There's wider access to capital in the public markets. There's other advantages that currency that you can create and the durability that you can build. So I look at it as broadening the choice as opposed to you know only one or the other is the answer for all purposes. And you you mentioned the strength of the US capital markets. While Blue Owl is global in its investor base, the majority of your investments are in the US. Why the both you and Doug ran platforms that were global in nature? We made investments in Europe and Asia and Latin America and all over the place. Why is Blue Owl's focus been predominantly in the U.S., if you will, so far? You've got 100 and, over $144 billion of AUM right now. That, that puts you into a lot of companies that I'm sure have global footprints themselves. But the real focus has been investing either at the GP level or in the debt level in companies in the U.S. Why, why the U.S. focus? In a way, it takes us into the DNA of, of Blue Owl. And this, you know, what is it that we set out to build that was you know, distinctive, perhaps from the other offerings that are out there, were out there at the time. And this, the strands of that DNA, I think, are kind of the, the foundation to answering that question, which is, I think about the two strands of our DNA. One being, what's the nature of the products we create, the investments that we offer to people that entrust their capital to us as LPs, for kind of a generalized term? And for us, 
our DNA is about risk management. Our DNA is about reduced volatility, protection of principle, preservation of principle, and durability. And so that's kind of one thread. And with that thread, frankly, the U.S. market is a very, very strong place to be. When you know, every time a crisis hits, and I'm not suggesting there are wonderful strengths in other countries and other markets over time, perhaps those will be things we'll want to capture. But think about where we stand today and think about you know, most prior crises. The U.S. ends up standing tall. We do have powerful, innovative markets. We have our challenges, for sure. But in a world thinking about, hey, where can I deploy capital where I feel as if I'm going to have well-protected investor rights? I'm going to have a predictable framework. I'm going to have a resilient economy. I'm going to have an innovative economy. That often brings us back to the U.S. So you know, I often will say this about many things, whether it was by you know good design or good fortune. Indeed, our investments are heavily centered in the U.S. That looks pretty good sitting here today. So your direct lending business, which is just over 70 billion of your 144, essentially working with private equity firms that have invested in companies and putting debt on them. The the vast majority of that is floating rate debt. We've got Jerome Powell in a couple hours probably saying to the world that we're going to raise by 25 basis points. One of the strengths of the Blue Owl portfolio is that most of the debt you have outstanding is floating rate debt. So it has moved as interest rates have moved, which has been very beneficial to you all and to your investors. As you can imagine, Mark, on in our business, floating rate debt is a is a great thing until all of a sudden your debt service coverage ratio gets to a point where you're getting choked by that move in rates and credit is becomes a very significant issue. When does credit become an issue from the Blue Owl standpoint, given the companies you invested in typically senior secured investments, but also floating rate where, you know, two years ago, those borrowers from you all were paying coupon rates in the one, two percent. And today they're paying in the six to eight percent. So absolutely, we provide senior secured floating rate debt in our credit business. And this, therefore, has been candidly a good environment for our business. It is a good, it's a term we're built for. You know, there's sort of a time and a place for everything, so to speak. And this idea of a maybe economic uncertainty, rate uncertainty, but rising directionally in terms of where we've been the last 18 months is really what we're purpose-built, the moment we're purpose-built to meet. Because it is about being senior, protected in the capital structure, and getting paid so in an as close to inflation protected as one could come because as inflation is being fought, rates rise, rates rise, we directly flow that through to the to the borrowers and therefore to our investors. So it's a, a quote beneficial environment for what we do. But Willie, to your point, like anything, you know, too much of a good thing, so to speak, at some point, uh, any company, any economy, you, you, this is the balance the Fed has been so far walking with kind of extraordinary aplomb. I mean, sitting here today, to be extremely self-aware, a year ago, I would not have guessed, forecasted, that we'd be sitting where we are today, which is this idea that somewhere up here was this hyperinflationary environment, somewhere over here was this recessionary environment. Those are kind of big blocks. Somewhere in between, there was this spot we want to porpoise our way into. Sitting here right now, the porpoise our way in case looks more you know, most probable of, of the existing cases. And so with that said, comes your exact question, you know, right now, I think we're we're landing, certainly from the Blue Owl point of view, and I'll try to as best I can to extrapolate it more broadly, because we do have several hundred companies that we lend to across all industries. So I, I think it's not a bad sampling of what's happening and get particularly the US economy or US based businesses. They're often global, as you point out. And what we're seeing is it's working. Companies are still growing. Revenue and EBITDA is still growing on average. Coverages are still perfectly healthy. You know, we uh, our companies, it, it's, of course, they aren't the coverages they were before, and it has to be a mathematical certainty that someone who could perfectly comfortably cover their interest when you know LIBOR so for now was zero has a greater challenge covering it when it's five. But the durability is strong. I, I sit here today, and our portfolio, we have not seen any material changes in the credit posture of our profile of, of our portfolio over you know the last year. It's 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 really to your point, Mark. The, the threading of the needle 
has been, I mean, you look at the Dow over 35,000 and there are those people who would say it's heavily concentrated in the seven big tech companies. And that's a fair criticism. But at the same time, to hear someone like you who has hundreds of portfolio companies that you all are obviously monitoring on a day-to-day basis, it, it says that the health of the economy stays quite good. And the fact that the Fed funds rate has moved by this afternoon, probably 525 basis points in the last 16, 17 months. But you know, the 10-year has only, and by the way, look, our borrowers are feeling it on the 10-year, but the 10-year has only moved about 100 basis points over the last year. And so while you've had this huge move in short-term rates, in, at least in the commercial real estate space, most people are sitting there off of the long end of the curve. And while 100 basis points can make a big difference, I'm not trying to diminish that, it isn't quite the shock to the system that I think many people, if we were having this discussion a year ago today, would have projected for the economy. Yeah, but that's, I think, well said. That's the experience we're having. And I'll just amplify, which is not to, to be repetitive, but our lens, look, we, we, we led to the very largest private companies backed by the very largest sponsors. But those companies are very small compared to the mega caps, of course, you're talking about, they're driving the Dow. So it is a a distinctive lens that I think people, many people listening to this, I suspect, would more characterize as the upper middle market of the world as opposed to anything like those mega cap companies, even though our language, our own little world might be different. And so it is a pretty broad sample. And my statements are are intended to be pretty broad, which is to say that across industries, not without flaw, not without individual companies. There's always going to be peculiar challenges, different enterprises, peculiar wins they have. But across industries, you know, we are seeing that business recession looks like we're still in a solid economy with businesses that are generally able to absorb what you can either characterize as a shock or change in the short-term costs with, as you say, looking forward and not such a shock or change in their, in their long-term. A bunch of your direct lending business, Mark, is to technology companies. And I had a kind of mind-bending discussion with Ezra Klein of the New York Times on Monday at the Sun Valley Writers Conference. And prior to sitting down with Ezra, as you can imagine, I had to do a lot of homework on on AI. And I, I asked Ezra, are you in the camp that AI is going to kill us all in a very short period of time or whether AI is going to actually you know, transform the world in a very beneficial way. And we we talked a bunch about DeepMind and the work that DeepMind did with AlphaGo, which was just to win a video game, and then to AlphaZero, which was to win a video game, but with no real parameters behind it. And then to AlphaFold, which has done incredible work on, on protein discovery, if you will, and the folding of proteins. And previously, prior to Google and DeepMind focusing on this, there were only 150,000 completely sequenced proteins. And by using artificial intelligence, they've now successfully sequenced 200 million proteins. And that that treasure trove of data is going to allow for medical research and drug development at a rate that I think is unprecedented. Which, as you look at technology companies, I think I have two questions for you. One, how much is AI sort of changing the focus of the companies that you've invested in? Because you obviously have you know, business plans with private equity firms that you invested in certain technology companies that all of a sudden right now might be saying, whoa, we need to shut. There's a real change in the market, change the strategy. How how prevalent is that? And then the second, just on a personal basis, are you in the, this stuff's going to kill us? Or are you in this, this is going to be really cool and change the world for positive purposes? Well, well maybe I'll start with the second. Yeah, it's, it's a, that's probably the easier one. Yeah, it might, might be the easier one. So, look, I view, and, and I don't want to pretend to have a depth of understanding. We're all learning about this. And frankly, AI is evolving so rapidly, they can be dangerous to sort of state much with great conviction about the exact path it takes. I did just finish reading The Age of AI, which is you know, Eric Schmidt and Henry Kissinger's book on this topic, which is more into the kind of policy implications, global relations implications, but obviously probes, what does AI look like and mean? And I think it actually reflects something closer to to at least the way I understand the world and think about it. This is another incredible productivity tool that like every productivity tool comes with dangers and it comes with disruptions and I don't minimize any of that. So I'm not a Pollyanna about it. I'm not in it's no problem. I think like most innovations, even whether they're they're 
giants in scale like this are smaller, they tend to be able to be used for better or worse. And you know, maybe it comes at a time. And right now, and I haven't seen Oppenheimer yet, but you know, think about nuclear power and nuclear weapons. You know, they can the, the the discovery and our understanding of the nuclear level of the atomic level of the universe has been one of the most important things we've discovered. It also created weapons that can be used to destroy the world. So it's hard not to picture AI as, as being able to be used in different ways by different people. But overall, it's a tool of incredible power to bring knowledge and observe patterns that we can't see and inform our decisions. Hopefully, and that's the part that I can only say, hopefully, we're going to develop the right kind of frameworks for how we use AI and common understandings of how we use AI and don't, so that we, you know, it doesn't sort of get ahead of us. My, my kids always say I'm too much on the side of the robots, which is sort of interesting because they live in a tech-enabled world. So I read a book like The Age of AI, and I feel pretty good that there's odds are we could land. I also saw the, the new Mission Impossible, and you know, that's a much scarier case. My kids said they told me so. So, I will, you know, we'll, we, we're in a vast evolving world. I'm on the more bullish side. Just one quick one, and then I do want to ask you about the specific portfolio companies and sort of a change of strategy or not. When I was interviewing Evan Osnos of The New Yorker on Saturday at the Sun Valley Writers Conference, as we were talking about AI, he made the point that he just interviewed Sam Altman, the founder of ChatGPT at the Allen & Company Conference. And Sam Altman and Oppenheimer share the same birthday. And it was just one of these kind of like really eerie kind of things. And is that just coincidence? Is there something about that? But every when he said that, everyone in the room sort of had this big kind of gulp of sort of like, oh, that's really wild. But anyway, for whatever that's worth. But talk about, Mark, you know, you... you you know, there's XYZ portfolio company, the private equity firm invested in in 2020, and the strategy was X on social media, on ticket processing, whatever the case might be. How much has AI come in to sort of say, whoa, this business is changing dramatically because of AI? And to some degree, there's a job for Blue Owl to do to sort of re-underwrite the loan. So- let me let me sort of set the stage. Indeed, we do a tremendous amount of lending to the software sector. Now, it's tech, but with, if we boil down to what we really do at Blue Owl, it's software lending. And we are, I think, quite clearly the market leader. I, I think we probably have close to $20 billion in, you know, in loans and, and investments with software tech companies. And we have a team of probably 30 people dedicated to this, this topic alone. So the, I say that just to inform kind of where my comments are going to come from. So AI for us, you know, has two dimensions to it. One is what does it mean for our business? And we have, so we formed an AI task force and we're lucky because we do have extremely deep technology bets and we do have a very wide portfolio. So I think we're in a very distinctive position, even relative to our peers to be able to develop a more informed view, to be able to act around AI, both for ourselves, what does it mean for Blue Owl, and therefore our LPEs and how we help them benefit from our application of our adoption of AI. And then to take it to your point, our portfolio companies, and what are the implications for our portfolio companies? Now, obviously, both of those are still, course, works in, in progress. But with regard to the portfolio companies, the reason that we have been positive and remain very positive on lending to software enterprises relates to the, the fact that they have these embedded customer solutions, right? Automated, that, that's to say, tech-enabled solutions for what used to be more manual processes or less efficient processes. And those companies are frankly in the best spot to adopt the beneficial aspects of AI and deliver it to that customer base. The, the power of software is that you have the customer, the customer relationship, the embedded connectivity, and AI in most applications. It's not as if you're just going to ditch everything you have. It's going to change the way you do what you do. And so, so far, again, back to this friend or foe AI writ large, I think friend or foe AI for most software SaaS software businesses, again, that's what we do, I think is actually decidedly more friend. Because it's going to be, they're going to be the ones that are going to adopt the tool and figure out how to purpose it into the specific application, medical records, who's better informed to do it than the tech company that already handles electronic medical records for hospitals. 
who's in a better position to handle you know, EHS compliance, you know, electronic certifications and management and integration with delivery to governments and other stakeholders than the person who already manages that customer relationship and is a tech-enabled company. This isn't a, these aren't lumbering old businesses. These are very front-footed businesses. So I don't dismiss by any effect or any or any element the, the potential disruptive effects around, so to speak, that edges someone might be the victim of the change as opposed to the beneficiary. But so far, it looks like it's something that will be an adopted tool and be helpful to the software businesses all the time. As I, as I hear you talk about that and these types of sort of innovative companies that you're underwriting from a debt standpoint on your direct lending business, just kind of a, maybe an odd question, maybe it's never happened, maybe it happens all the time, but you also have a GP solutions group that has over almost $50 billion of capital outstanding. Do you ever go to underwrite an opportunity that's on a software business, for instance, and they've come to you for a debt solution and you say, well, this is so exciting. We want to be on the GP side. I mean, do you, do you ever like change the conversation or if, if whichever XYZ private equity firm comes to you and says, look, we're looking for debt for this investment, your underwriting is debt and you stay in that lane or have is your team turned around and said, whoa, whoa, whoa and all that, we want to jump across and be on the GP side. Okay, so it's an outstanding question and it actually gets to the second thread of the DNA you know, metaphor I used before, which maybe was appropriate in the context of AlphaFold and others as biologics. But I, I I was talking before about the one thread being low volatility, low risk, delivering durable alternative solutions to investors to LPs. The other thread, the, the users of our capital, the commonality that ties them together is they are indeed alternative investment firms, often private equity firms, to your point, in many cases, saying, hey, I need a capital solution. And in fact, the design of Blue Olive is all about the one-stop shop you're describing. It's not so much about, whoa, 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 hey, we'd rather go do this, as much as it's saying, listen, bring us your opportunities, your challenges that require capital solutions and things require capital, and we will help you find solutions. And then you can decide which solution suits you best. Our job is to work for our LPs. Our job, our fiduciary duty is to deliver what you know to our LPs great risk return. For us, the more opportunities we can get in the system, the more times a partner, a company or a PE firm says, I want to work with Blue Owl. Yeah, yeah, I understand what, you know, what the price that, that that may entail. I want them as my partner. That's a benefit for our LPs. So the way I would take what you described is not so much, hey, I love this portfolio company, but I'd rather do this. It's more, I love this portfolio company. Isn't that interesting? This GP is doing some really fascinating things. We should make an introduction over to our GP stakes team to see how they're thinking about their GP and whether there's also an opportunity for us to support them there. And that's really how we built this ecosystem. And you happen to use a word I use a lot, this kind of, hey, stay in your lane. And you asked me before about kind of how we are, what other firms could do or not do. Blue Owl, when I take that DNA and focus it together and now switch metaphors quite intentionally, there are strategies out there that are, look, all things to all people, right? There are firms that it's about delivering all solutions of all types to all people in all parts of the world. That's not what we are. The single lane answers too. That's not what we are either. We have a compass direction. Our compass direction is north. And what defines our compass direction is those DNA strands I described. It's sort of the kind of products we deliver for investors on the one hand and who uses our capital on the other. That's the power of, that's the highway we occupy. And we have certain lanes we occupy well today with market-leading positions in providing capital to GPs and being a direct lender to the biggest companies, to the best sponsors, and doing triple net lease solutions to the biggest corporations. That is where we live today. There's other lanes in there, some of which we will occupy over time, but we're on a highway going in a particular direction. So that's really the way almost to picture the why does Lolly even exist? Why are we prospering? is because we have a defined path, but it's not as narrow as a lane, but it's not as broad as all directions on the comes. So on your GP solutions business, Mark, it was funny as I was, you individually are a member of the Washington Commanders. And by the way, I hope you take it back to the Washington football team, just as an aside, that's my plug. And I'd also love to see you have my friend Taylor Heineke come back to the Commanders, but that's just a personal plug on on the webcast for two things as a, as a, as a, as a, as an owner of the the commanders, my team from DC. But as I was sitting there, one of the questions I was going to ask you was, as you and an individual looked at other 
types of sports. And then all of a sudden, as I was doing research, I saw that Blue Owl has worked as a GP to buy GP interests in other professional sports teams, such as the NBA, where Blue Owl invested as an investor in the Phoenix Suns, as well as the Sacramento Kings. Um, talk for a moment about sports and GP interest, because I guess the premise here is this. There are only so many billionaires who can stroke multi, multi-billion dollar checks to buy these franchises, these franchise costs are going up and up and up. And so by being able to play on the GP side, you're providing liquidity to owners and then also providing an investment opportunity that your investors wouldn't be able to find on an individual basis. Am I right in sort of the way you all came to this? So uh, look, I'm lucky enough to be a, a part of the the investor group, the ownership group for commanders. But listen, this is this is Josh Harris' team. I'll pass on your Yours. Yeah, please. please do. I have to say, though, Mark, I have to say, just by the way, when I talked to Condi Rice last week about being a part owner of the Denver Broncos, first thing she said was, I own about four helmets, which was great and self-deprecating. And at the same time, there is a reason that Condoleezza Rice is an owner of the Broncos, and there's a reason you're an owner of the Commanders. So let's just leave it at that. Yeah, okay, well, we'll all work to discover what that reason might be for me. I'm quite sure they benefit from, from her. But in any case, we, Josh and, and Magic Johnson and Mitch Rails, you know, are doing a good, I think you do an incredible job with that team. I'm very excited to be a very, a very modest part of it and look forward to, as they've said, you know, seeing the team return to its extraordinary strength. And, you know, it is fans like you that are going to make the difference. And you heard Josh say this, you know, changing the fan experience is top priority. So I have to just one one of my things, one, one, one final thing is that I have to put in here. The commanders for years have tried to get, because Walker Nellis based in DC, they have tried for years and years to get me to get a suite. And I've said to them time and time again, look, I love the team. I love football, but as long as they're owned by X person, I will never consider it. So as you can imagine, their first phone call on the day that the team was sold was to me saying, right, that was your one condition that you wouldn't buy a suite. So we may have another conversation after this. Uh, wait, wait, be recorded. Oh, can I get your commitment for a suite? All right, exactly. Here. You got it. <laughs> anyway, so, but on the, on the, on the NBA side and on buying GP interest and other outside of your personal investments, what you've used the GP fund to do in sports, because sports clearly, not only does it have a lot of attention right now, I, I had Greg Maffei of Liberty Media on the webcast a couple of weeks ago. Greg obviously owns Formula One. They've looked at all sorts, but I mean, live, I mean, right after Maffei was on, you had Bob Iger, CEO of Disney talk about basically potentially spinning off all of their cable channels other than ESPN. And you sit there and you go, what's different about ESPN than all their other program television, live sports. And so, you know, there's so much interest in the value of these franchises gone up so much that Blue Owl's product offering to be able to go and invest in GP interests on professional sports team is a really interesting angle. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're hitting on all the forces that inform the development of that strategy. There's a clear analog and a strong and good one between being part of a sports ownership group, a minority owner in a sports ownership group, and being a minority owner in one of these alternative asset managers, being an a minority owner in one of the GPs that we fund today. And that analog is what brought our GP stakes and solutions team to the topic of sports and continues to give us, you know, I think some real so some real work ahead and opportunity ahead in sports. So what does that mean? It means you have to be able to know how to identify the creative opportunities, like who is really built to win economically as an alternative firm or as a sports team. You need to have patient long-term capital because these are not assets that are being bought and sold with any frequency. And that's the case with GPs and with sports teams. But they're also extraordinary franchises, right? You think about the Silver Lakes and the HIGs and the CVCs and the, the Baritas and the Forbes were lucky enough to be owners of on the GP stake side. They are incredible in, in during, during franchises, analogous to the sports point. So everything you're, you're suggesting is exactly what brought you know, our, our team there, which was, look, there's a huge marketplace evolving with capital needs to your very point that are rapidly exceeding you know, what is available in the individual investor marketplace. And so we've already been doing this in in basketball. We are the the approved partner of the NBA for these minority stakes. It's a very strong place to be. It's a great opportunity. 
and build it off of that. We're now looking at, well, what can we do more broadly as institutional capital becomes maybe not just welcome, but necessary in most sporting arenas. Frankly, the only place where institutional capital, as you know, today is as permitted is the NFL and they will mm-hmm. they decide. Yeah. They, they, they might have to, if, if the value of these franchises keeps going up much more, they may have to change some of those capital rules that they have on the uh, on the, on the the NFL side. And a shout out to the Denver Nuggets for winning the NBA title this year. I was there the night that they won it and it was a really exciting thing. So let's switch to real estate for a moment, Mark. So your Blue Owls real estate platform was just named a top performing real estate core and core plus fund manager by Prequin and Mark Zarr and his team hats off to him for having built that platform. There's a lot of concern about commercial real estate today. You're talking to somebody who gets questions on it every single day. What's Blue Owl's outlook? And I know your investment strategy on triple net properties and 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 big corporate users is somewhat distinct from other strategies like I'll pick at Blackstone for a moment that basically has their hand in every single type of asset class globally, office, retail, hospitality, multi-industrial, although to the, the B-REIT's great credit, they really did in the B-REIT just focus on multi and industrial and it's held up quite well after kind of the, the run on the bank that they had in Q4 of 2022. But talk for a moment about Blue Owl's 20 billion plus in real estate and why it's distinct. So I'm going to have to be very cautious in talking about real estate with the world leading expert in real estate. So I'm going to I'm going to tread carefully. So I'll, I'll try to stay close to my knitting, which is knowing what what we do here, and you know all this. Hopefully, will will integrate in, in in people's minds when I talk about what we do and how we define our our highway. And I talk about that lower risk, lower volatility, principal protected investment strategies. That's what we do. Well, that's what we do in real estate. So in real estate by measure of the breadth of the real estate industry, we're very small. By measure of the particular niche that Mark Czar so cleverly identified well over a decade ago and has architected these, this leading position for, we do triple net lease, generally 15, 20-year leases with investment grade or strong credit counterparties. So the expenses, of course, a triple net lease solution are are not solely an inflationary environment. That's not a risk for us and our investors. That's something that the tenant manages. And it's all about durability and predictability of those income streams, which during a bull market, people are fine to have. But in a risk-on market, it's sort of like, well, that's nice. In a risk-aware market like we're in today, you get a lot of recognition, and we do deeply appreciate the recognition from frequent, kind of exactly the point, hey, you know what? It turns out, there's a lot of different flavors inside these big words called real estate inside a big word like credit inside a big word like equity. Our flavor is, again, sort of this is its moment to shine because what we're providing people is that predictability and certainty anchored by an attachment to a great tenant and a critical asset. So from where I sit, you know, I think it's a spectacular strategy that I created, that, that Mark created to provide visibility and durability and a way to participate in real estate through this kind of disruptive time and have it, in fact, not be a drag. It's actually a loft for our strategy because cap rates in general are rising because of the malaise around the sector. And yet within our particular niche, you know, besides of the risks of you know, doing an Amazon warehouse have gone up. So we're generally pleased with the environment that we face off against. I, I love that term risk aware. It's like, first of all, backing up to what we talked about previously about where we are versus a year ago. A year ago was clearly risk off every across. And, and a lot of commercial real estate, as you know, right now, Mark, is still in a, in a risk off mode, but it is moving quickly, I think, to risk aware. And that's going to create more opportunities and capital flows coming back to commercial real estate. And it's, I think it's credit to, to Mark and his team that on the Blue Out platform, given the investment strategy that you're able to be risk aware right now and not risk off like many, many other providers of either equity or debt capital, the commercial real estate space. Yeah. I, and, and I'm glad that term resonates because I, I think it in a way captures exactly what we've been talking about around Blue Owl. Like if risk 
matters and how you manage risk matters. It matters in good and bad times. It's just not visible during good times, right? It's more visible during more challenging times. And that's where we really have our kind of bread and butter is building products that are built in a very risk-aware fashion. And so we, we had these uncertain times, I think that's why, again, we're taking it up a notch. It's kind of why it's generally speaking, you know, favorable for what we do. I'm not trying to be a Pollyanna. We, you know, uncertainty is an enemy of capital formation. Yeah. I know the future. You know, I'm for sure. And who knows where we'll land. But I, I being in a business where you're very tuned into risk, this is the environment where that tends to shine. You talk about risk management, Mark, and let's talk for a moment more broadly about the management of Blue Owl. Only in that you have co-CEOs and you and Doug, and you actually have three co-presidents. And as the old adage goes, if someone doesn't own it, nobody owns it, has been a sort of a management philosophy that at least Howard Smith, who's our president, Walker and Dunlop, and I have have pretty consistently tried to put into place that, you know, these 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 divisions or businesses need to be owned by somebody. And if it's by a group, you're never going to get to the right solution or the right ownership of it. You all have clearly been extremely successful being in sort of this partnership senior management structure. What's either unique about Blue Owl or just the relationships that you all have with one another that's made a co-CEO and three co-president structure work? So fully acknowledging that it's an atypical structure, certainly less common than than not. And in many cases, I you know, I I don't think there is back to this account. There's not a one size fits all. It depends on the nature of the business and the nature of the people and what the risks in the business are. But I would actually say it's pretty consistent with actually our view of risk management, which is we're trying to build an institution, and I think successfully build an institution that is way bigger than any individual. So I suppose the corollary argument would be if it's sort of if only if, if no one's in charge, if, if not one person's charge and no one's in charge, they'll sort of be well, okay, but then if something happens to that person, then what happens? So I think our idea actually probably is wired to our personalities and style and culture, which is we don't want failure points. We don't want anyone. And by the way, no one of us matters. And that applies across the board. We're trying to build an institution that always has a redundancy. And I give Doug the, you know, the credit for this. You know, Doug is, was CEO, said, hey, listen, you should join me as co-CEO. People don't do that. And he does it because he's saying, I know what's best for Blue Owl. Our co-presidents are incredible leaders for this business. But it's very clear where bucks, different bucks stop, and yet we can kind of get the best of all our minds on a topic too. So Mark Zarr is co-president and runs the real estate business extraordinarily well. And Craig Packer is co-president who runs our credit business extremely well. And Michael Reese is the co-president who runs the GP stakes business and was the founder of that business extremely well. So we have very clear kind of places where we wake up and focus each day, but that also gives us you know, the ability to share knowledge share information, share origination ideas, take those ideas and cross them over to the benefit of our LPs. But it also gives us that backup. It builds the depth we need so people can know that it's not just Blue Owl and pregnant alternatives. This has been a big issue. Is it a cult of personality? Is it about any one person or two? It's not. In our world, it's about Blue Owl platform. We're thrilled to be a part of it. We think we add value in our, our roles, but yeah. We, if any one of us got hit by a bus, Blue Owl carries. Mark, the you know one of the four ethos of Blue Owl is constructive dialogue, and when I read that, I thought about Ray Dalio, <laughs> and I thought about the, the the quote unquote constructive dialogue that Ray tries to 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 put into his firm. And I'm just curious, given having a leadership team that is so wildly talented as you have at Blue Owl. There would be an assumption from an outsider that there are these super successful, super talented senior management team that sort of says, we're going there and let's go do it. And so having constructive dialogue as part of one of your ethos is, I thought, very interesting and important to understand. How do you at a firm that is run by people who are wildly successful and have very strong opinions on things, make sure that that constructive dialogue happens on a day-to-day basis? So like anything in culture, it is about reinforcement and sort of walking the walk. And again, like everything we do, I'm far from asserting we've got this 
sorted or perfected. And that would be my answer on, on any subject, sort of everything's a work in progress. But the, the thing for, I guess, us is at the end of the day, back to being a risk management oriented organization, risk protective, that tends to actually also fit with the culture where you're saying, listen, if you have a concern, express it, right? This, this isn't about one person's brilliant insight. It's actually about saying, how can we bring all the brain power? We have an incredible team here. We are so fortunate. Since inception, you know, I don't, I'm sure there's exception every rule. I can't think of anyone that we have lost that went to a competitor. And I think that speaks to kind of cultural and, and, and kind of non, I, I think it's a good place to work, but I think it speaks to this culture of inclusion and dialogue and really valuing individuals' opinions. So listen, I'm, it never will be anything like as, as successful or insightful as Ray Dalio and, and you made racks of other incredible business leaders, many of whom you interviewed and I've none of those things. But you know what when I guess I'd say anchors us is having having been in alternatives since 1995, long before it was called alternatives, having been in private equity before it was called private equities, LBOs back then, you know, when I started, there were two large LBO firms in the world, two. You know, there was KKR and Forceman Little. Things other TPG was a start, right? Blackstone. Yeah. Carlisle was Carlisle was a postage stamp back then. I, so it's just an incredible evolution in these markets. And you know what? My probably my most significant takeaway would be is that will give you a lot of humility, and that will give you a lot of sense of you know, right place, right time counts for a lot too. And I'm not taking away anything from the skills that people crafted these enterprises have I mean, within my world. And I think we've had some good ideas, but time and place counts. And you know the kind of macro, the tailwinds, the ecosystem you operate in counts. And I think that humility of recognizing that a lot of our success comes from things that are outside our control, and so do some of our failures, I think helps us also then build a culture where we say, so none of us have all answers. We just don't. So the more we can encourage people to say, I just, I don't see it that way. We may not reach the conclusion they're advocating, but boy, we should hear it. As soon as you get to that echo chamber where you're not hearing from people anymore, and this is, again, lessons I've learned over time, it's very easy to get into a culture where it's easier just to sort of say yes, get along, you have a different view. Hey, you have, but the, the most toxic thing I think in any culture, again, recognizing the limits of my knowledge, is we finish a meeting and everyone nods their head and then they go off to you know get a coffee and they're like, oh, sad and dumb idea. Yeah. That's the worst possible thing you can have, I think, in a culture. So we're trying hard, hard to fight what happens as organizations grow to say everybody's opinion matters and may or may not believe it, but we want to hear it. And we love when you disagree with us, if you have a good reason to. We're not saying let's disagree. I got it. Uh, I know clearly your focus right now, being co-CEO of Blue Owl, focuses on all industries, the various products that you all are putting out, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I can't let you go without talking about energy for a moment because you truly are an expert on energy. You ran the energy practice at KKR and infrastructure. Two quick questions for you on that, Mark. First, I, w- I watched a number of your videos on alternatives, on, on wind and solar and things of that nature from you know a decade ago, speaking out at Stanford University. What surprised you the most over the last decade as it relates to alternatives? Either they've exceeded expectation, they've undercut expectations. One of them has grown much faster than you would expected. What's been the biggest surprise in the alternative fuel energy space from your standpoint of where we were back in 2013? So I think there's good and bad news. Um, the good news is it's been working. That is to say that renewables as a part of the energy complex have decidedly been growing in some cases. Again, depending by region, and as you know, electricity is a complicated animal. In some cases, much more than people would have expected. Wind in West Texas you know, has grown more than people would have expected. Some of the applications of residential solar. Now, a lot of these things are driven by incentives that have been created to, to lead to these results. So I don't want to suggest they're just things that happen in the sort of open field of market play. But nonetheless, you, you'd arguably have seen a great success in the implementation of renewables in, in many parts of the US and, and around the world. At the same time, you know, the 
call it bad news, but I think that the, the recognition we have to have to get from here through a practical energy transition over the long term is the recognition that we have a very long ways to go. And we don't today have the technology, the capability to move as rapidly as perhaps people would like, perhaps we will want. There'd be a wide range of views on this, but the energy transition, we're going to be with carbon fuels for a very long time. And so the key here is going to be how do we get from today's world to that low carbon future and do that in a way that is healthy for the environment, but also allows for economic vitality. And so I think if the good news is it's working. I think the, the bad news is there's a bit of impatience and this is going to be a long process. And I, I think we're going, to, we're going to need to sort of take a, all of the above strategy to get from here to there, realistic. And on oil, if we've got carbon fuels around for a longer time frame than many would potentially like, a year ago right now, oil was at 110 a barrel. There were a lot of, I actually was looking back and I'd read a, a an analyst report by a truest analyst a year ago that was saying that oil was going to go to 160 bucks a barrel. Good thing I didn't read that report and go long oil. And, you know, it got down to 75 bucks a barrel last week. It's back up close to 80 today, 79. Just generally speaking, Mark, what's your sense as it relates to oil going forward? It, are we looking at that it's kind of in this band because of supply and demand characteristics of where the market is? Or is there something given your deep expertise in this space that would say to you, it's probably goes down from here or probably goes up? So a couple of thoughts. Again, recognizing what you yeah, I, I got I got all the caveats you're gonna say here. Okay, I, just, so I want a sense of you know much more about this than I do. Should we think that oil is gonna be a hundred bucks a barrel? Should we think that oil is gonna be fifty bucks a barrel? I think you need oil prices that are closer to where we are now to rebuild the pipeline, pun partly intended, of energy that we need. Remember, we went through a period of time over the last several years where there was dramatic underinvestment in production and it does deplete. Again, some people will view that as good news that it depletes. But the fact is, when you still need it, that's not good news because you have to replace it and it's very expensive. And so without being able to know, I would say you need prices that are closer to today's to make a return on capital work in the energy complex. And that's that's just a, a reality. I, I'm thankful that, you know, it's funny you said that about forecasts. I remember the last energy super cycle in 0607, and people were talking about $200 a barrel. And I've always marveled at the fact that you can be an energy price forecaster and be off by, you know, not only orders of magnitude, direction, and you're still a forecaster. It's actually quite a, it's quite a job. So, but that said, I just do it from the bottoms up, which kind of is the way we, I tend to work and think. And if you just look at what you need to get to make a return on the capital it takes to even stay, to just stay even on oil production, let alone you know, grow with economies around the world, you probably need prices closer to what we have now. Certainly not meaningfully lower. To debate whether they're higher or lower, that's not something the, the whim of the market or maybe an OPEC a given day. And last tough question for you. We're probably going to have a 525 Fed funds rate by the end of the day today. When would you project, I mean, the forward curve has been wrong ever since they start, we got into this tightening cycle. Um, and the forward curve set a 413 Fed funds rate by the end of the year back in May. And then it went up to a 525 and now it's rallied back down into sort of the high fours. Just from a rate standpoint, Mark, you think that we hang in this higher for longer range or do you think that the economy steps backwards and we've got a cut coming up in the next six to 12 months? So most importantly, I'm thankful to be in the floating rate business. So I don't have to know the answer to that. And I say that only half facetiously. That kind of is the point of our strategies. So I'm fortunate that I don't have to depend on that answer one way or the other, because that's exactly what we adjust for. With that said, I would make this observation. I don't know where rates are going. I have no greater insights on that and lesser than you and many others. However, on inflation, and knowing how that looks through the lens of companies and with some you know, meaningful reflection of this question, inflation is a tough, tough animal to take. And so I think if I could come out this door, inflation does not go away easily. And full credit to the Fed, we seem to be making progress, but that would lead me toward it's it's not so easy to take your, your foot off that brake 
because we're still in a place with very tight labor markets. Good. Lots of people have jobs. Costs are still very high, right? That puts a lot of pressure though on people's pocketbooks, but I don't, the inflation has not gone away. It has abated from its peak. So I would be in the replacing remains a risk category about more so than again, sitting here today at the, the company level. The recession doesn't look imminent. It doesn't mean we're not technically going to be in one. I, I, I don't know, but that doesn't look imminent. Inflation is still you know, a beast to finish being tamed. Mark Lipschultz, it's a true pleasure to have an, a, a, I should say, again, I'll go back to it, not an old friend, but a longstanding friend such as you on the 150th Walker webcast. Thanks, Lippy, very much for spending the time with me today. It's a real pleasure and congrats to all that you and Doug and all of your colleagues have done at Blue Owl. It's really fun to watch. Thanks, Willie. Thanks so much for having me. It really is a true privilege. And our longtime friendship is very high on that list of real privileges. So thanks. It's great. Have a great day. Thanks everyone for joining us.